Welcome. My name is Scott Malone. I'm Boston Bureau Chief for Reuters, and I'm also your moderator today. Our panelists, starting from my immediate right, are David Hemingway, Professor of Health Policy at the Harvard T.H. Chan School, Jeffrey Swanson, Professor in Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University, Amy Klinger, Director of Programs and Co-Founder of the Educators School Safety Network, as well as Professor in Educational Administration at Ashland University, Ted Strickland, former Governor of Ohio. And joining us remotely, we have Mike McLively, Senior Staff Attorney and Director of the Urban Gun Violence Initiative at the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. This event is being presented jointly with Reuters. We're streaming live on the websites of the forum and Reuters, and we're also streaming live on Facebook. This program will include a brief Q&A, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also uh, participate in the live chat that's happening on the forum right now. So, the U.S. Converse conversation on gun violence and gun rights has followed a familiar pattern for years now, with high-profile shooting incidents sparking heated debate but limited legislative action. In the wake of February's Mar Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, and the ensuing March for Our Lives protests, uh, some feel that we are at a turning point, um, because of, in part because the student survivors of that attack have emerged as some of the new faces of gun control advocacy. Uh, we're beginning to see action on legislative measures at the state level, including in states uh, such as Vermont and Florida, both of which have Republican governors, and we're even seeing some changes at the federal level. Uh, today, we're going to talk about some of the measures that have been proposed to curb gun violence and to take a close look at, uh, at which among them are likely to make a real impact. Uh, but first, let's have a quick look at a clip from Reuters of the uh, March of Our Lives protests. I want to see change. From New York to Florida to Berlin, young people across the globe leading the charge for tighter gun laws. I'm Andy Sullivan in Washington, where a massive crowd has gathered. The largest of more than 800 rallies planned across the globe today. Organizers say they expect more than half a million people here, galvanized by last month's school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Congress has failed to tighten gun laws after similar massacres in the past. The people here saying this time they won't stand for inaction. My generation is the change, and even though we're young and we can't vote yet, we will, when we're older, vote out the people who are endangering our lives in schools. And I'm here to make my voice heard just like everyone else. Students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida organized the rally, trying to break the influence of gun rights groups like the National Rifle Association. The people demand a law banning the sale of assault weapons. The people demand we prohibit the sale of high-capacity magazines. The people demand universal background checks. Stand for us or beware, the voters are coming. President Trump signed a bill on Friday that provides money for school security and fills some gaps in the background check system. Steps that fall far short of what advocates are pushing for. This is not cutting it. Outside the Trump International Hotel in Washington, organizers in brightly colored shirts scoured the crowd for young people, registering them to vote ahead of the November elections. It's all about getting the kids to vote. There's a lot of kids here. They signed up 17-year-old Tyson from Fredericksburg, Virginia. Now I, I can get my word out there and be a part of the change instead of just sitting at home and watching on TV. In American politics, generally it's been safer for elected officials to favor gun rights over gun restrictions. Young people are saying it's time for that to change. Grown-ups have failed to protect them from the threat of gun violence. They may not be old enough to vote, but that's not stopping them from pushing the United States to change the way it thinks about guns. 
Great. And with that, we'll kick off the discussion. Uh, David, I think we'll start with you. Um, we often hear that gun violence, and especially mass shootings, is a distinctly American problem. Uh, how does the United States compare to the rest of the world? And what effect do you believe that the recent clarification of the Dickey Amendment might have? So the United States, compared to all other developed countries, has an incredible gun problem. We have, we are not a country where uh, we have worse uh, violence uh, or crime that's non-gun, but we have by far the most guns, by far the weakest laws, and by far the largest number of people dying from guns. Uh, data and research matter, and unfortunately we've tied our hands in this area. Uh, we don't do nearly enough research in every area in public health. We expect the federal government to step up. They step up in terms of doing, providing research dollars for AIDS and obesity and motor vehicles, but not for guns. Uh, there was a study done recently. It indicated that compared to for the size of the problem, there should have been 40,000 peer-reviewed journal articles about guns in the last 12 uh, uh, or so years, and there's been only 2,000. So we know something, but not enough. And really, Nothing has changed at all in terms of federal funding. Uh, in the new uh, appropriations, there is no money for federal uh, research on firearms in the CDC budget, none in the NIH budget. The Dickey Amendment was always just symbolic. It, it just said that if you do gun research uh, and it comes out with results we don't like, we'll take away your funding. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has not been eliminated. Uh, we wait uh, after every major uh, catastrophe in terms of firearms. We, you know, what does the Surgeon General of the United States say? What does the head of CDC say, our major public health agencies? And they say nothing. Why? Because they know if they say anything about guns that research dollars uh, can be eliminated. There are, however, successes I'd like some time to be able to talk about in terms of uh, research and research dollars and what a big effect it has had where we've been able to do something. Great. Um, Jeff, we've heard a lot um, after Parkland and really after every mass shooting about a supposed link between gun violence and mental illness. Um, you've studied this um, and looked at information and policy uh, measures that can improve both. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned? Yeah, gun violence is a big public health problem, but we tend to focus on it when there is a horrifying mass casualty shooting. And it's so disturbing and it's so irrational that people want an explanation for it. And they get one. You know, our lawmakers uh, step out and say, well, this is about mental illness. Um, and that resonates with what people already believe. I think that's a big dodge to avoid actually talking about the hard problem of how we limit uh, access to firearms for people who are at risk of harming others or themselves. And it doesn't square with the facts. I mean, we know that the overwhelming majority of people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are not violent towards other people. And we could cure mental illness, which would be wonderful, and our violence problem would go down by about 4%. So it's not the place you'd start from a public health point of view. There actually is a story about gun deaths and uh, mental illness, and that's suicide. The majority of gun deaths are, are suicides, and mental illness is a strong a causal factor uh, in suicide. So, so that's, that's an, an issue. Um, we have um, you know, laws on the books since 1968, the uh, Gun Control Act that restricts uh, certain people with mental illnesses from purchasing guns. Um, those tend to be uh, a, a legal determinations, such as involuntary uh, uh, commitment to a psychiatric hospital or a determination that someone's mentally incompetent. Um, and has a guardian or in a criminal matter that they have been found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity or incompetent to stand trial. 
uh, those, those are only as good as the uh, background check data that are there when people go to buy a gun. And the criteria themselves tend to be um, over uh, broad and under inclusive at the same time. And they identify lots of people who actually aren't dangerous and they fail to identify uh, a lot of people who really are. So we could have better criteria, but that's only one piece in this big puzzle of gun violence prevention. We need to do a lot of things because of the challenge that private gun ownership is constitutionally protected and we have an awful lot of guns. And so that's what I hope we can talk about today. Great. Um, Amy, one of your goals is to help teachers to identify at-risk students and intervene in other ways. Could you tell us a little bit more about the important role that, that teachers play in this process? Yeah, I, I think there's some perspectives that can really be shifted in this whole discussion. And, and I think one of the important ones is shifting our perspective to the, the fact that teachers and educators are the first first responders because they are the ones that need to do something when these horrific incidents occur, gun-related or otherwise. And so I think that perspective needs to shift. And the problem is those first first responders are not getting training. They're getting very little, if anything. So they're being asked to deal with these horrific events with, with hardly any training. They also are not given violence prevention training, which would be a significant improvement in terms of threat assessment, management training, helping to identify individuals at risk for violence against themselves or others. I mean, so there's a lot of those sort of things that could be happening for teachers, and they're just not, because if they get anything, they're getting an active shooter training, and that's it. They're not getting anything about prevention. They're not getting anything about an all-hazard sort of response because we have tried to take security, and you heard that in the clip, we have said we're gonna do security in schools instead of safety in schools, instead of violence prevention in schools, instead of training for educators. So we are tra taking a law enforcement orientation, which there's nothing, not a knock on law enforcement, but we're taking a law enforcement orientation and putting it on top of a school. And we're running schools, not prisons. So we have to come at this from an education perspective. And if all we're gonna do is take a law enforcement notion and plop it into a school, we're not gonna solve this problem. Great. Um, one thing that does feel a little bit different in this moment is that the students' voices are coming out and kind of leading the call for changes in gun legislation. Governor, um, you've experienced firsthand the competing pressures that have kept gun laws in check for so long. Um, why is it so hard to make changes at the federal and state level and any reason to think it'll be different this time? Well, I want to answer that question, but before I do, I want to say how proud I am that Amy is a fellow Ohioan <laughs> because what she said made so much sense. Um, I'm an example of the influence of the NRA. Uh, earlier in my uh, political career, I was a member of the NRA. And um, as it became more and more radicalized, uh, I broke with the NRA. And uh, lo and behold, when I ran for the Senate, um, they spent, uh, in, in early August of that election year, they had spent more money against me than in all other Senate races combined. I uh, ended up spending um, well over a million and a half, perhaps as much as $3 million uh, against me. Now, I've told people, and I really feel this way, I feel some pride in that, because I really think what's happening is that the country is becoming increasingly sensitized to the fact that um, we've got to take control of what's happening to us as a people. And I think what we've seen in terms of these young people in Florida and other, uh, in other areas across the country, we are seeing a commitment 
on the part of our youth to make sure that this issue does not fade from memory and that we pursue reasonable solutions. And even in my state of Ohio, which is uh, a state where the NRA has great influence, um, the current governor has proposed some modest uh, changes. Uh, they haven't really been passed into law yet, but, uh, and they are modest, but at least we're starting to see uh, a crack in the firewall. And I really believe that we are at a tipping point in this country where the voices of the majority of the people will be heard and the NRA will lose its uh, uh, intimidation uh, and that uh, political leaders will become increasingly willing to do the right thing. Great. Mike, uh, you track gun laws in all 50 states. Um, where are we now? And uh, based on what you're seeing, you know, what's changing out there? Any, any big shifts you can talk about? Yeah, thanks, Scott. First, I would just say, um, you know, in the wake of Parkland, I think there is a lot of momentum on this issue. And it feels, it certainly feels as someone who's worked in this area for several years, it feels different than it's felt before. And, and just looking at polls earlier this morning, uh, support for common sense gun reform is at its highest level since the early 90s. Uh, when you look at individual policies that we're trying to push and that the Parkland students are asking for, uh, the, a major, an overwhelming majority of Americans support many of these policies, especially if you're looking at universal background checks. We're talking about over 90% of the American public. So that gives me some hope in those, in those new polling numbers. Uh, and then I think the fact that the Parkland kids are being so strategic in their advocacy, uh, they're, they're doing incredible work on social media. And we've seen in just a few days, Emma Gonzalez, for example, having more followers than the NRA, and that's happening overnight. And I think the way they've done this in terms of plotting it out over time so that, you know, there was a school walkout last month, then we had the March for Our Lives, there's the Town Hall for Our Lives event coming up this weekend. They're really doing a good job of keeping this in the news cycle, which has been a major difference from shootings we've seen before, even really large shootings like we saw in Las Vegas that just fade out of uh, the media discourse. So I, I have a lot of hope. I think the big test will be what will happen in the midterm elections. Um, we can talk about that a little bit more. But in terms of gun laws, I mean, I think folks know at this point, federal laws, especially compared to other developed nations, are very, very weak in this country. Um, they, they sort of create a baseline uh, that is not strong, and it's really up to the states to sort of fill in the gap. So one of the things that we do at Giffords Law Center is every year we publish our gun law state scorecard. It gives a letter grade, A through F, to states based on the strength or weakness of their gun laws. That's available on our website, which is smartgunlaws.org. I would encourage people to check it out. But what we see year after year is that half or more than half of the states get an F grade. And there's a very strong correlation between states that have weaker gun laws and high gun death rates, and also uh, very high rates of exporting crime guns. So I think one of the best examples of this is Chicago, right? Where people say, you know, Illinois has fairly strong gun laws, Chicago is restrictive, but more than half of crime guns that are, are traced and recovered after crimes in, in Chicago actually come from Indiana. Uh, so really, the state's gun laws are only strong as its neighboring state. Uh, that being said, there are a number of states that are doing a great job, uh, at least in a relative sense, on this issue. Uh, Massachusetts is one of them, and I think it's worth noting. Uh, Massachusetts has the lowest gun death rate in the entire nation, so it really provides a model for the entire country, and is also the fourth lowest export of crime guns. 
So with a variety of legislation in place in Massachusetts, and I think this is really important, Massachusetts is one of the only states that's investing very seriously in evidence-based, community-driven approaches to gun violence, both prevention and intervention programs for those who are most at risk. So really getting at, you know, we talk about mass shootings and that takes up so much of our bandwidth. This problem is really driven in large part by what I would call day-to-day shootings that are happening on our city streets. And we're talking about 14,000 homicides and then tens of thousands of additional non-fatal shootings that are happening. And Massachusetts is doing a great job directly addressing that problem. And many more states need to follow that example. Great. Okay. So let's uh, move our focus to uh, some of the specific measures that have been proposed in states and at the federal level. Um, Governor, why don't you take us through some of the new rules that are starting to get a little traction? Well, as I said, even in Ohio, where the NRA has uh, great influence, um, the governor recently proposed a package of modest reforms, among them um, allowing for gun violence protection orders so that uh, if a loved one is perceived to be uh, in danger of um, acting inappropriately or violently, that intervention is possible. Um, domestic violence orders, uh, people who, who are uh, under domestic, uh, domestic violence orders uh, are prohibited from buying a gun. Certainly comprehensive background checks, uh, prohibiting straw man purchases uh, for firearms, uh, bump stocks. I mean, th- these are modest, but um, given uh, the nature of Ohio and given the influence of the gun lobby in Ohio, I think these are indications that uh, the pressure that's coming from uh, the larger uh, community in this country, and especially from our young people, I think it's evidence that it's having an effect. And so we've got to keep up the pressure. And, um, and I think we can see, and hopefully will see, in the fairly near future, um, some, some modest changes. Um, we can't solve this problem uh, with one fell swoop. I wish we could but that's not the nature of how change occurs. But we can begin doing what is possible and uh, it will make us a better and a safer country. Great. Uh, Mike, you called out uh, Massachusetts in your, in your comments. Um, talk a little bit about best practices here and you know, across the, the nation, what seems to be having an effect. Yeah, sure. So Massachusetts, unlike many other states in the country, requires uh, all firearms purchasers to obtain a license before they're able to buy a gun, uh, has close to universal background checks, has prohibited assault weapons and large capacity ammunition magazines, uh, requires safe storage of firearms. I think this is really important from the public health perspective. You know, people can have guns in their homes, and obviously that's a constitutionally protected right. Uh, But that being said, Massachusetts requires people to safely store their firearms, which studies have shown makes a big difference, uh, especially when it comes to kids, you know, obtaining guns in in their parents' home, for example. Uh, And then, uh, like I said earlier, the state has made probably the highest per capita investment in urban gun violence prevention and intervention programs. So I think if you look at those as a whole, uh, that's really a great model for for regulating firearms um, and being smart about it. Uh, there's only a few things that Massachusetts does not do right now. Uh, you can purchase, there's no limit on how many firearms you can purchase at a time. So one of the policies we advocate for is limiting, you know, limiting people to purchasing one handgun, for example, per month uh, as a way of cutting down on trafficking. And people can you know, purchase dozens of firearms at a time and then use that to sort of 
funnel firearms into the illegal market. Um, so, and in terms of trends we're seeing around the rest of the country, I think the number one trend right now is in gun violence restraining orders. There are 20 different states that are considering that uh, approach. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's very targeted. And you're talking about disarming a dangerous person for a limited amount of time, really important. Uh, and only about five states, I think six now after Florida, have that in place. And with that bill being considered in 20 different states, there's really a lot of momentum behind that, that policy, which is great. Okay. Um, Jeff, why don't you talk a little bit about red flag laws and why they're, why they're gaining momentum? Right, so red flag laws, it's a, it's a term um, among others. Uh, we've heard gun violence restraining order, extreme risk protection order, uh, risk warrant law. They're basically different names for the same thing. And what they are is it's a, it's a preemptive temporary um, uh, gun removal scheme. It gives police officers clear legal authority to search for and remove firearms from people where there's um, information, specific information, that they pose a risk of harming themselves or others. It's a civil court order. Uh, it's not criminalizing. It doesn't uh, either require or produce a criminal record. I think the reason it's important is because there are a lot of people who die in this country every day as a result of a gunshot fired by someone who owned that gun legally and would pass a background check. So we could do a lot of work in terms of trying to fix the background check and all that, but these are individuals who will still be able to purchase a gun. And just as a specific example, in Florida, we did a study of, uh, of gun suicides, and 72% of these individuals who ended their life with a gun would have been legally eligible to purchase that gun on the day they used it to end their life. So I think that's why it makes sense. It also gives family members a, a tool, an avenue. If they, you know, this could be, we're worried about granddad. You know, he's uh, bereaved and he's, uh, depressed and he's all by himself and he has all these guns, he owns them legally, what are we going to do? Well, if you're in one of these states now, Connecticut, Indiana, um, California, uh, Washington, Oregon, or Florida, there is something that you can do. And we have some evidence uh, from a study we've done in Connecticut that this actually works. It for, it's targeted to people who have a very high risk of suicide. Um, the average number of firearms removed in the Connecticut uh, uh, sample is seven guns per person, so it's people who have a lot of guns. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's important because it's not focused uh, on willy-nilly on everybody. It's people who really, uh, you know, need this intervention. And uh, what we were able to calculate is that for every 10 to 20 of these gun removal actions, one life was saved, you know, and that, so is that high or low? Well, it kind of depends on where you're standing, but none of us is more than one or two degrees of separation away from someone uh, who used a, a gun, ended their life, a gun suicide story, a gun violence story. And, and so every one of these people, it's a, it, it is, is a tragedy in its own right. Uh, it's not just a bunch of numbers. This, is, this ripples through families and communities. Um, so I think this is very promising, and it has a lot of support from people on, on both sides of the big gun control debate. Great. David, I know that one of the things that, obviously the mass shootings get tremendous attention, but but death by suicide involving a firearm is a, is a much bigger number overall. What's the role that red flag laws can play in, in preventing that? Well, what I'd actually like to talk about in terms of the suicide is that most guns um, are used in terms of death are used for suicide rather than homicide. Uh, and that uh, that's the one area, even though we don't have a lot of good research, this is the one area we know for sure is that a gun in your home increases the risk for suicide. People who live in families where there's a gun have much, much higher rates of suicide than people who live in families without guns. And what we've been doing is, uh, and I give a shout out to Kathy Barber here, but in public health, we've been figuring out ways at the local level to work with 
gun advocates and gun stores and gun trainers to work together to find common ground. And we are really making incredible progress trying to figure out ways to reduce suicide among this group. And mm -hmm. it's a very incredible uh, success story and it's a building success story and it's a a beacon of hope is that there are ways sort of to cross the lines to work together. Okay. Jeff, after, you know, mass shootings, typically mental health is brought up as, as an issue, but I think you've seen that mental health is far more likely to, to play a role in a, in a suicide. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So um, suicide is also caused by many things, and, and the risk factors for it are kind of nonspecific, which means they tend to apply to more people who are not going to do the thing you're trying to prevent. That's what's difficult about this, you know, in, in, in our country in particular. Um, but one of the important things about suicide is that lethal means uh, really is important because um, if you look at all the different methods people might use when they're in that moment of despair and uh, can't see their way out, and maybe it's an impulsive act or something, most people, the large majority of people who attempt suicide, survive, with one exception, and that is if you use a firearm, and then it's just the other way around. People almost never survive because it's an extremely efficient killing technology people aim at the brain. So that's a really big public health opportunity. We're never going to live in a world where we don't have people inclined to harm uh, themselves or others, but we shouldn't have to tolerate living in a society where people have such easy access to, uh, to, these, uh, to these means. And so, um, you know, what, what uh, David said is absolutely true. Um, it has something to do with just the e how many guns there are out there. Um, but also, specifically, if there are, um, if there's information that a family member might have, I think the, the uh, extreme risk protection order is a, is a really good um, tool in those cases. It's not, it's not going to solve the whole problem. But it's a, it, it fills a niche where you have people who might have guns, could own them legally, and this is a way. And we actually found, too, I want to mention this, that, that a lot of times when police go out to, uh, um, to uh, serve the risk warrant and search for and take the guns away, they find a person in crisis. And they transport that person to a hospital emergency department where they're evaluated and they get treatment. And so we found as a totally unintended benefit of this that the proportion of people getting outpatient mental health treatment doubled from the year before to the year after the gun removal event. So it became kind of a portal into getting help, a signal event. And I think that's important as well. Um, since Parkland, uh, there's been an uptick in discussion about arming teachers. Um, Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about that and about the resources that teachers need to be able to intervene sure. in a crisis? Uh, I think when you're going to talk about arming teachers, you need to remove guns from that discussion, which I understand sounds very ironic. <laughs> but when you're talking about arming teachers, we, we always have folks you know, that think everyone should have a gun, and we have folks that think no one should have a gun. And so that becomes the discussion point on whether teachers should be armed. Um, as a nonprofit, we are not politically interested in any of that stuff. What we so we are not pro-gun or anti-gun. We are pro-effective solutions and anti-bad ideas. Uh, <laughs> wait, it would be yes, anti-bad ideas. I want to make sure I said that right before I said it, uh, because the the issue is that we know that there is really very little evidence that supports that this would work, and there's lots of anecdotal evidence that shows in, in the two weeks following Parkland, you had three different instances of guns being discharged or lost or somehow in the mix in a school by trained law enforcement professionals. And so the idea is not that this solves every single problem. It's what 
million other problems have we created? And we know when we look back at past events, Arapahoe High School in Centennial, Colorado had an SRO on scene, 87 seconds between the, the beginning of the shooting and the ending of the shooting by the SRO. You still had two fatalities. So this notion that that's the thing that we need to do and now everything is okay is frankly, ridiculous, because there's a grocery list of things that we can do that will make our schools safer, that will protect our students, that will help to empower teachers to make the decisions that they need to do. But it is not a quick fix of we're just going to do this one thing and then we chalk it as a win and everybody's good and happy. We know that that, that, that doesn't work. And my frustration with this discussion of arming teachers is not where I fall on this debate, it's that it takes out of the discussion the really relevant stuff that would work, like violence prevention, like de-escalation training, like threat assessment training, like providing teachers with the resources they need, like asking parents to look at, you know, we deal with the kids that come in the door. So to look at schools all the time as, hey, you need to protect my kid, you need to f solve this problem, you know, schools are a reflection of society. So we have to look outside of the schoolhouse to look at what's happening that this is coming into our schools. So I think arming teachers is sort of a, a shell game that gets us to take our eyes off the really significant issues that don't involve guns. Because if every gun on the planet disappeared right now, you still have a school safety problem. There are still school kids that are unsafe in schools for a variety of reasons that don't involve guns that we need to be training people to deal with and to prevent those. Okay. Mike, I don't want to leave you out of this conversation. Um, obviously, incidents like, like Parkland get a lot of attention, uh, but we see in some ways, you know, much more frequent violence in, in large cities like Chicago. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think one stat that really emphasizes this point and is something that I tell people is if you look at 2012, which was the year that the Aurora shooting took place in Colorado, for example, there were something like 90 people who lost their lives in mass shootings that year. That same year, more than 6,000 black men were killed uh, in a gun-related homicide. So this is a problem that you know disproportionately affects our especially underserved communities of color. And I think we need to be keeping that in mind when we're making our policy. And I really want to commend the, the Parkland kids because so far they've done a very good job of understanding that they have a platform that they have in part because they are people of privilege. They've come from a wealthy community. They've been empowered to speak. Uh, and they've done a good job of drawing attention to what's happening in Chicago, for example. They met with kids from Chicago. They are not letting this go. I hope that at some point they incorporate uh, urban urban gun violence intervention and prevention into their official platform. Uh, I'd love to see that happen, but they are doing a good job of using the influence that they have to draw attention to that. And if you saw the speakers and the speaker lineup at March for Our Lives, there was a great representation of people who have been affected by urban gun violence, people from LA, Chicago. Uh, so that was certainly not ignored or nor was it made into a token representation, which is great. I think just a quick example of what's working here, again, to look at Massachusetts. Massachusetts has a multi-million dollar program called Safe and Successful Youth Initiative, or SSYI. And basically what it does is in the cities most impacted by violence, uh, those cities are giving grants to basically use street outreach techniques. So you're going out into the community, you're going out to where people actually are and providing wraparound services to people who are most at risk, at proven risk, they say, for involvement with violence as either a perpetrator or a victim. And it's important to note that that population often overlaps. 
So, you know, providing services for victims of violence is also incredibly important. So I think that's a model program. And then also hospital-based violence intervention programs. You know, people who have been shot are at very high risk of either perpetrating violence down the road or becoming victims themselves again. And there's sort of this revolving door in our hospitals where we're very good at treating violent injury, but then we release people right back out to the exact same conditions that got them there in the first place. So that's a strategy we're trying to scale up around the country. There's only about 30 HVIPs across the entire country. If we're really meeting the demand, we would probably have more than 100. So we're really trying to get states, uh, federal government, and locals to adopt that policy to sort of break that cycle of violence that we're seeing. Great. Um, David, early on, you, you dropped a number that, that caught my attention. You talked about the, you know, given the magnitude of the problem, there should have been 40,000 academic papers on gun violence, and there have been 2,000. Talk a little bit more about the research that's going undone and why. Um, well, there's so much we don't know. There's some stuff we do know, such as a gun in the home increases the risk for suicide, but there are so many things that once you scratch the surface, we don't know about. So um, how do guns get into the wrong hands so easily? As far as I know, there's been one peer-reviewed journal article about gun theft. We know, even though three to 500,000 guns a year are stolen. Uh, we, we say, let's uh, tr get training. Everyone should have training. Uh, there's been only two peer-reviewed journal articles in the past, and these were in the past year, about what is really being taught at gun training, what does gun training really do, does it really matter, how can we improve gun training. There's been zero articles about open carry. You know, what's the effect of open carry? I mean, so you name the, the thing. It's like we should be doing so much more. And I want to give a shout out, though, to two foundations. Mostly foundations have been not good on this, but two foundations have done, given a lot of money for research. Uh, one is the Joyce Foundation, so much, so much, so much we know is from them. One is the Wellness Foundation in California, and this is such a success story. 25 years ago, the Wellness Foundation said, Gun violence really matters. They gave a lot of money for research. They gave a lot of money for advocacy. Um, over time, maybe about $125, $140 million. Over time, California now has some of the strongest gun laws in the United States. Firearm fatalities, in terms of the, the firearm death rate, has fallen something like well over 50%, more than halved since the early 90s, whereas in the rest of the country it's been falling, it's fell by about 10 to 15%. Just an incredible difference. And this is sort of one foundation making a difference. And the other thing is now in California, they are actually funding gun research, the California state government, because the feds aren't doing it and they are big enough to be able to do it, and it would be nice if other governments stepped up because people really have to step up because there's so many things we need to know but to, and do, but research really matters. I, I wrote this book a number of years ago about 64 documented successes in injury and violence prevention, ways we've made the world safer, and every, basically every one of those data and research actually mattered, actually weren't the only things that mattered, of course, but they were really important in terms of getting these wonderful successes in terms of reducing problems. Great. Um, Mike, talk a little bit about uh, restrictions on data sharing and, and why it's so difficult to trace guns. Yeah, I mean, this is a big problem that we've identified at the federal level is that in the early 2000s, we had the TR amendments, which basically prevent the ATF, so the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. That's a federal agency that's in charge of tracing crime guns, of regulating gun dealers. Uh, the TR amendment basically prevents them from sharing their, their crime gun trace data. 
So that means academic researchers who are trying to understand trends and you know, how are crime guns moving from one state to another? What does that mean? How can we help stop that? They, they don't have access to this data, which makes no sense. Really just law enforcement and then prosecutors who might be using it to prosecute a crime can get access to that data. So we have this rich body of information out there and the federal government has prevented us from accessing it, uh, which really makes no sense. And we mentioned earlier, you know, the Dickey amendments, which came in the early 90s and basically said, you know, uh, the CDC can't study anything related to gun control, which effectively created a freeze on studying firearms. Just that just this year in the wake of Parkland, Congress has sort of clarified that language. But they've said, you know, the CDC can study the causes of gun violence, but not the solution. So it has not appropriated any direct funding to study gun violence. So, you know, we're spending in the entire country a few million dollars on a problem that costs 30,000 lives and creates another 70,000 non-fatal injuries. We're talking about more than 100,000 people affected by this problem every year, and we're investing next to nothing in researching it, studying it, understanding it. And I think regardless of your political beliefs on the issue, when that many people are, are dying and being injured, we need access to information. So that really is something that needs to change in this country. Great. Um, Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we know about the frequency of, of school-based violence and, and threats? Sure. Well, we're primarily a training organization, but what we found is we needed to really start doing research because there wasn't a good amount of research that was available that was very current. And so it's kind of ironic that we're having this discussion post-Parkland, but when we were, you know, we've been tracking this for the last few years, and when we were looking at threats and incidents of violence this fall, before Parkland ever occurred, we had seen about a 12% increase in the number of threats and a 59% increase in the number of incidents of violence before Parkland ever happened. So we were very concerned before that even occurred. And then we started tracking what happened post-Parkland. Um, and 47% of all of the threats that we've tracked so far this school year, 47% of them have happened in the 30 days after Parkland. So schools are dealing with incredible chaos in terms of the threats and incidents of violence. Um, we went from averaging about 12 a day nationally post Parkland to, to 59 a day. And that's dropping off a little bit. But social media is a huge piece. About 45% of them are all coming of these threats are coming in over social media. And a couple of things that, that we find that have been sort of under the radar, there have been two explosive devices that have, have been in schools in the 30 days since Parkland. And we know, if you go back and look historically, Columbine was supposed to be a bombing event. And, and the impact of Columbine cannot be understated as a sort of benchmark that everyone is trying to aspire to. And so schools are in this really awful position right now of you, you can't ignore these threats because we've seen what happens when you do. But they also, we have to have school. We can't just never bring kids together again and never educate kids again. So educators are caught in this really difficult trap of how do we respond to threats and incidents of violence. We have no training in what to do. Um, so we default back to law enforcement. So then we end up arresting lots and lots and lots of kids for doing something stupid that they wouldn't have been arrested for 
if they had done it in January, probably. So it's just a terrible dilemma that schools are finding themselves in as we look ahead to the remainder of the school year. And so we really feel that the data is really important because it's just not out there. And there's so much of what people believe or perceive or I think. We want to know what's happening. And that's kind of why we found ourselves thrust into this role as researchers um, very quickly to kind of see what's been happening since Parkland. Okay. And it's alarming. Yeah. And I mean, prior to Parkland, you know, for the past you know, number of years now, we've seen this kind of steady drumbeat of, of these incidences. Um, and as I said in the opening, you know, kind of the same inaction results. Um, one thing that's been, been different since Parkland is we're seeing some new faces representing the, 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 the movement, you know, the students, the survivors. Um, I'll start with you, Governor, but I'd like to really hear from everybody. You know, what's, what's different about this now? And, and, you know, is there any reason to think that, that we'll see some, some change? Well, I, I hope what is different is that the American people are becoming increasingly aware of the circumstances that we face. I, I perceive that most Americans did not realize that research into this area of public health was literally, uh, for all practical purposes, forbidden, not funded. Um, how can you justify being anti-research, finding out? getting information. And so I, th I think there is an awareness, and part of it is coming from the work of these kids. Um, as has been said, they, they are well-spoken. They uh, know their, their uh, well, they have moral authority, has been said. I mean, they have faced uh, the tragedy of seeing their friends killed uh, in front of them. And, um, and, you know, when you get young people involved, and I, th I think there's a history of this in our country, uh, going back well before the Vietnam War. When you get the young people engaged and involved, things happen. And um, the, the access to social media now, which was not available 20 or 30 years ago, um, the fact that they are fortunate kids, they do come from an affluent part of the country. Um, and you get the kids involved, and then you get the moms involved, and you get the dads involved. And I, I think we will see a cumulative effect here as the American people become increasingly aware of what's at stake. And what's at stake is more than just school shootings. By the way, it's easy to tell that you were a teacher, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Um, uh, and and uh, so I do think uh, I'm not a prophet. I can't make a prediction here. But I do think that some, some events are coming together that are unique uh, when it comes to this gun issue and that we are perhaps in a place where we can make real change and move forward and, uh, and, and make ourselves a better, safer country. Great. Um, I, I certainly hope this is the time uh, what we're seeing now for the first time is some companies stepping up and saying, what can we do as companies to try to reduce gun violence? And this has not occurred before. Um, the news, it's still in the news. Usually after these shootings, two days later, the news dries up and it's still, and so newspapers are trying to play their role. And I would like to see everybody, I'd like to see action. And the, the tradition of public health is, 
here's a problem. Let's try to get everyone together. It's a societal problem. What can we all do? What can every group do? What can actuaries do? Uh, what can foundations do? They can do a lot more. What can the faith community do? Um, and one of the things, of course, I would like to see is a few Republican conservatives step up and say, enough is enough. I'm going to put nation in, uh, ahead of uh, ambition. This is exactly what happened in Australia after uh, the Port Arthur massacres. Uh, we had brave conservative politicians say, enough is enough. We are going to support reasonable things to protect our citizenry. And they passed much better laws and stronger laws. And over the last uh, 25 years, there's been no mass shootings there. Uh, and they have good laws. And uh, the rates of firearm violence in terms of firearm homicide, firearm suicide, are like 80% lower than they were uh, in 1996. And so people, you know, you just want to see some profiles and courage. But this is a time when every group, not just individuals, but groups should think, what can we do? And if everyone pushes at the same time, something incredible could happen. Jeff. So we tend to think about gun violence in America as if this is one country, and in some sense it is one country. But on the other hand, there's incredible regional variation, both in the scope and features of the problem and also in what's happening. Um, you know, people were discouraged that, quote, nothing happened after the Sandy Hook shooting. But if you look at the state level, more people, uh, you know, now live in a state with stronger gun laws than before that because um, a lot of things happened. Some big states passed uh, gun legislation that made sense. Um, and I think people have an opportunity to uh, influence state lawmakers that is more difficult at the federal level. So I think that's encouraging. On the other hand, there are some things that really need to happen at the level of of, of, of the national, federal uh, government um, background checks is a, is a good example. Um, but over time, you know, I think really, if you look at other examples in public health and injury prevention or what have you, the, the, the real uh, function of um, regulatory solutions um, is to help to change cultural norms in a safer direction over time. We have lots of examples of that seat belt laws is one of the big ones. Who wears their seat belt now because it, it's a law and you're worried about getting a legal sanction? No, you put it on because it's just natural. And I think we need that kind of cultural change over time. It's difficult because guns are embedded in our culture. They're wrapped up in the you know, iconography of our social history. We love guns in this country and we have a heck of a lot of them. Um, but I think over time, um, you know, it's a challenge, but, but, there, but there, will, there will be uh, a shift. And, and I'm encouraged by the, the, the Parkland students. One of the, maybe one of the biggest things that they could do is to, is to engage their generation uh, to come out and vote and to get excited about civic participation um, because they uh, don't necessarily have the ideological baggage that their, uh, that their elders are stuck with. And, and, and so I think that is true, how change happens. I, I absolutely agree. And uh, I was just thinking as you were talking about um, mothers against drunk driving. Uh, there was a time in this country when drunk driving was not considered all that a serious offense. Right, yeah. and, um, and mothers got involved. And over time, there was very significant change. And I think a cultural change is what we need. And I think we may be, hopefully, in the embryonic stages of seeing that occur. 
Well, I want to be the spoiler then, I guess, because um, I agree that there are it, there are some things that are different. Um, my concerns are some of the things that aren't different. Um, we still are talking at schools instead of talking with them. Um, when you see the talking heads on television, there's no educators. It's law enforcement, former military politicians. Politicians are making legislation and not talking to educators. Um, so that's a, that's a big concern of mine, that education folks have not been given a seat at the table. Partly because we haven't demanded it, but partly because it is not looked at as an education concern when it is, as we are the ones responding to that. And what we're going to see, my, my fear is, what we see coming out are feel-good measures like we're going to buy some more stuff, we're going to buy another security alarm, or we're going to buy another camera, we're going to so we can hold it up and make everybody feel like we're doing better. Instead of training the people that are going to be using those things, instead of training the people that are going to be protecting your kids, we can't have parents just marching around demanding we want a metal detector and now the school is is safe. And so I think that's one of our concerns is that we see this going into, or I see this going into a security law enforcement orientation over and over and over. So it's either about guns or it's about security. It's never about education and training and putting the tools in the hands of the people that are really going to use them. And I wish that I saw that evolving differently. But the fact that you see very few education people involved, I mean, it's great that our students are, but how about those educators at Parkland that were in those hallways dying, trying to protect those kids? Do they not deserve a level of attention and a voice and a seat at the table? I feel they do. And I don't see that happening to the extent that I wish it was. I think that makes so much sense. And once again, I'm proud you're an Ohioan. <laughs> oh, there you uh, go. Common sense, Ohio. Uh, you know, and we need to apply pressure on, on the political class. An example, in Ohio, shortly after they passed a law allowing guns in daycare centers, they decided to put metal detectors at the entrance of the state house. And uh, so my question would be, are legislators' lives more important than the lives of children in a daycare center? We need to point out the irrational, the irrational nature of, of some of what we're doing and some of the arguments that are being made. I think that Mike was trying to join in with something. Yeah, so uh, for me, the stat that jumps out is that in the 2014 midterm elections, that 18 to 29-year-old segment of the population uh, voted at a rate of 20%, right? So this is a potentially very powerful voting block that so far, at least in the last few years, hasn't been showing up. So for me, the sort of litmus test for this movement will be this year's midterm elections. And I would encourage everyone to take a look at that number. If that ticks up a substantial amount, then I think the Parkland movement will have been a success. And I think that at least so far, they're showing that they can really energize people on this issue. And then to link it back to that polling I was talking about, uh, the majority of people polled uh, gun violence was their number two issue facing America right now. So this has, I think, become the movement so far has helped elevate this as a priority. And then the question is, can we translate that into creating a larger voting block uh, that will help create some political change? And I think part of what's great about the Parkland movement so far is that their messaging is very on point. If you look at what their requests are, we're talking about universal background checks. As Ted was saying, you know that is such a common sense uh, policy. It's very hard to argue against that. And that's why it holds at such high numbers with the American people. Uh, they're talking about banning large capacity ammunition magazines. They're not out there saying, you know, let's ban all guns or let's repeal the Second Amendment. This is to me a very 
common sense movement that's not radical at all. And, and most Americans can agree, yes, we should have universal background checks. And we don't need to take guns away from all Americans in order to get a handle on this problem and start dealing with it more effectively. So anyway, I would say I have hope, but let's see what happens in the midterm elections. Let's see how many politicians are leading on gun violence. How many ads, political ads do you see that are addressing this question? I think we're going to see a lot more, but we'll, we'll have to wait until November. Okay. And now I think we're going to take some questions from online. Thanks a lot, Scott. We have a lot of questions and not a lot of time, so I'm just going to ask a few. Uh, Governor Strickland, we have a lot of questions about the NRA. So um, can someone comment on why the NRA, which is a small and not extremely well-funded lobbying group compared to oil, drugs, agriculture, mining, defense, which are huge compared to the NRA, and even an organization that not very many Americans even belong to as a percent of the population, why does it have so much influence in American politics? And what does it say about an opportunity for a similar counter movement with even more support from citizens to be even more effective? I think a counter movement is a possibility. Why do they have such influence? Uh, in my judgment, it's not because of the money they give. It's because of how they cultivate their membership and how they communicate um, their ideas. Uh, it's been many years since I've been a member of the NRA, but I get an email from them two to three times per week. They stay in touch with their members and uh, they do it in a way that conjures up uh, fear, uh, anxiety, and threat. And so that gives them great power and influence. You gotta hand it to the NRA. You can disagree with their, um, their values, and, uh, but, but you've got to admire uh, their ability to communicate their message to their membership. Although it's relatively small, they do it effectively and it has an effect. Thank you, thank you. Um, here's another one. Are there, these are from our live chat, by the way. Are there any resources for parents on how they can speak to their young children about gun violence and how to properly discuss the active shooter drills with them? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's for you, Amy. Well, um, and that's something that we've talked about in our, in our organization because we do that. We speak with students and parents and, and groups like that because there is a lot of fear. And, and I think there's a lot of anxiety. And, and to be fair, um, we have seen active shooter drills that are horrific and that shouldn't be happening that way. And so we really have to come to some sort of, you know, common sense definition of what are we trying to accomplish? What sort of skills and capacities are we trying to build in kids and do it in a way that is developmentally appropriate? And oftentimes to speak to that, you see, this goes back to what I said earlier about just imposing this law enforcement orientation over, um, over education. So it's not developmentally appropriate to work with six-year-olds with a law enforcement guy teaching him how to fight a gunman. That's not appropriate. But it is very appropriate to work with six-year-olds on how would we all move together if we had to rapidly get out of this room? What would we do if something bad happened and I needed you to listen to me? And, and who would be a safe adult to go to? So it's really when we take this very one-size-fits-all 
and, and frankly, a very law enforcement instead of an education view that things get real scary and get real traumatic. And we are we have people looking for resources that are education based. And I guess I'll say we have them. But I mean, there, there just aren't a lot of them, you know, as an organization, as a nonprofit. That's that's our mission. But it, it's very difficult as a parent to how much do I want to talk about? And there's a lot of anxiety among parents. And so I can see where that certainly comes from. Um, but I think parents need to advocate on behalf of their children demanding education solutions to this, not just law enforcement solutions. Thank you. I know we're running out of time. I'm just going to take one more. We have a lot of questions about people getting guns illegally outside the background check system. Um, here's one. If guns are taken away from lawful gun owners, then the only people with guns will be those who obtain their we weapons by illegal means. Then what do we do? Um, I mean, I don't know anybody who's talking about taking away guns from lawful gun owners. We, we live in, right now, only, it's important to recognize that right now only 22% of U.S. adults own guns. So 78% do not, but there's no, there's no attempt to try to take guns away from people. The, the, the evidence indicates that when you have much stronger laws, it makes it much harder for inappropriate people to get the guns. And so what you're really doing is largely disarming uh, people who shouldn't have guns. And, and in countries where they have good licensing, turns out the, the, the most gun, most murders are done by licensed owners, even though they, they have strong licensing, because it's so hard for non-licensed people to get guns. Here we make it so easy. Could I just add to that with respect to gun violence restraining orders? Because there is, you know, I've heard this uh, criticism about that in particular. Um, it's important to know that this is really focused on risk. It's, it's not focused on um, just anybody. And there are very strong due process protections um, to make sure that the, that the information is there. So on the front end, there, there has to be legal probable cause uh, for a risk warrant to remove guns from that risky person. And then there is a, a court hearing with the judge where the state has the burden to prove by clear and convincing evidence that that person poses a risk of harm to self or others in order to retain the guns, otherwise they get them back. So it's really focused on people where there's clear information that they pose uh, an imminent you know, risk of harming someone else or themselves, um, and, you know, and, the, and, the, and the due process protections are there. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, I think we're going to move into uh, wrap-up mode. And what I'd like to ask each of you do is this is basically a lightning round, one or two <laughs> sentences. What's the, the idea to take away? Mike, we'll start with you. Sure. So I just want to make a quick point about the Second Amendment, since that didn't come up in our conversation, but it's a big part of what we're talking about. So the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to bear arms, but I just want to highlight and underscore for everyone that the Supreme Court has identified a very limited right to self-defense, to have an operational firearm in your home. But all the policies we've talked about today uh, have been upheld by the courts. Very few challenges to gun laws have been struck down on Second Amendment grounds. Just this morning, a federal court upheld Massachusetts. Uh, regulations on assault weapons and large capacity ammunition magazines. So the Second Amendment is not an object uh, or, or an impediment to common sense gun reform in this country. And I just hope that the Parkland movement will continue to uh, have people aware of this issue and, and politically motivated to vote. So if you're not registered to vote, my message is go register and find 10 of your friends to register and vote on this issue. Great. David. 
Um, I guess that there's, uh, I haven't got to talk about it much, but there really is are ways for everyone to get together on this and, and that public health and gun advocates have been getting together about suicide prevention and we'd like to see them uh, also get together about trying to keep guns out of the wrong hands. And there's a lot of common ground to be found. Great. Yeah. We've talked about the need for culture change with regard to, to guns. I hope there's also, uh, over time, a change in our culture in attitudes about mental illness. Um, and uh, because the way it is now, people believe that, that mentally ill individuals are dangerous. And that just adds to the to, to burden of social rejection and stigma that people who are recovering from mental health conditions feel when their neighbors assume that they're dangerous. And, you know, imagine you learned everything you knew about schizophrenia by watching television in this country. You'd think that every single person with schizophrenia was a homicidal monster. And if we could get past that, there's a very powerful, I think, alliance between mental health stakeholders and the gun violence prevention advocacy folks. They haven't really talked to each other much in the past because the mental health stakeholders are loath to be drawn into a conversation about improving the mental health care system in the wake of a mass shooting. We do need a better mental health care system. And I think the conversation can come together around suicide prevention and lethal means access. And that will, that will be a very, a, a very powerful conversation that's needed and will have a benefits not only in preventing gun violence, but improving outcomes for people with serious mental illnesses in the community. Amy. Well, you guys kind of set me up because I think, you know, from an education viewpoint, um, we're looking at the idea, where can we start? The baseline we can all start in is no one wants kids dying in schools. Okay, great. Where do we go from there? And there's all kinds of things that are common ground that don't have to be as divisive as some of other issues, things that we can do that will make a really significant impact coming from an educational perspective in keeping kids safe. And so I think that that sort of foundational place is where we need to begin, regardless of where we end up in terms of gun violence and gun initiatives, we still have a school safety problem that needs to be dealt with. Governor. Well, and I would say that um, we have the power as a citizenry to decide what kind of country we want to have and what kind of country we want to live in. And we have the power within ourselves to make decisions that will result in us being a safer, um, more secure country, a more caring country, a country where we care for the common good. And I think um, the kids in Florida are showing us the pathway to reach that goal. Fantastic. Okay. So I want to thank all of you for, uh, for joining us up here. I want to thank everybody in the room for coming out. I particularly want to thank everyone online for, for tuning in and, and sharing us your, uh, your great questions. And I want to encourage you to come back next week, uh, Thursday, April 12th, for a uh, panel on opioids and addiction featuring, featuring governors. Thank you.